One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Dennis Funk. We have a big announcement this week. The winners for this year's Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition have finally been announced. To dig into all of the top picks from this year's competition, head over to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, and have a listen. We still haven't announced who won what. You know, like who the judges chose as the Gold, Silver, Radio Impact and the brand new Little Mermaid Award. But if you're curious, you can find out live at our awards ceremony in Chicago on November the 9th. So join our host, 99% Invisible Creator Roman Mars, plus all the winners and audio makers on the red carpet. It's like going to the Oscars, but less stuffy and our trophies are well better. They're handcrafted and make really ridiculous fun sounds like this. Beat that, you little golden naked man. Uh, For tickets and more details, head over to thirdcoast.brownpapertickets.com. All right, all sorted on my end. Now, here's this week's podcast. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Somewhere in the back of our mind, we all felt that something was wrong. And, you know, every time I say it, I feel more and more naive. But the one thing that really shocked us was the realization that people back home in Israel have no clue what we've done. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect, curate, and bring you the best audio stories available worldwide. We search high and low, near and far, on the internet, the airwaves, podcasts, just so that we can bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. You're sure you're going there to protect Jewish settlers from Palestinian terror, and many times you find yourself doing exactly the opposite, protecting Palestinians from Jewish terror. Though largely unobservant, I am a Jew. I belong to a synagogue, make latkes in December, smatter my sentences with a healthy dose of Yiddish. But when it comes to supporting Israel, I don't do it blindly, even though my father is a Holocaust survivor, and the Holocaust is often cited as the reason to support Israel. The issue is very divisive in the Jewish community. In fact, my synagogue recently made international news when Brant Rosen, the rabbi, resigned after a vocal minority of congregants vehemently objected to his outspoken criticism of the Israeli government and advocacy on behalf of Palestinian rights. We're going to hear from him later in the program. But first, an Australian writer travels to Israel to answer his own questions about what's actually going on there and, as a Jew, how he feels about it. The story was produced in 2012, but as you'll hear, it's timeless. Here is Breaking the Silence. I'm an observant Orthodox Jew. Okay, hi everyone, good morning. So we're going to head off 
So my name is uh, Avner. I work breaking the silence. I've worked with breaking the silence for the past two years. I grew up in what you would call the right side of Israeli politics. I did my high school in the settlement in the West Bank. Um, my sister is a settler today. My cousins used to be settlers in Gaza, so that's more or less where I come from. I grew up in a religious Zionist family in the city called uh, Rehovot. We're going to be talking a lot about settlements and legal outposts and so on. I graduated high school, joined the IDF. I was an infantry combat soldier and a commander. I finished my service as a company sergeant. Three years of service, more or less the peak of the violence of the Second Intifada. I was two years in the West Bank, and out of these two years, I served around 14 months in Hebron. As, as a combat soldier in the, in the occupied territories, you, you spend your time manning checkpoints, doing arrest operations, patrols, Alston militias. And at the end of the day, even though I come from where I come from, I had a lot of doubts. I'm a nice Jewish boy from Bellevue Hill. What was I doing recently in Ramallah, in the West Bank, occupied Palestine, walking into a modern building with a dark glass facade and huge white letters above the entrance saying PLO headquarters? If only my Jewish friends could see me now. I was with a group of politicians, academics, trade union officials and others on a study tour of humanitarian aid projects for Palestinians in South Beirut, the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Throughout the tour, I was conscious of seeing the human face of the occupation and the Palestine behind the stereotypes and caricatures. If only my Jewish friends and the rest of the world could see what 65 years of dispossession and 45 years of a brutal military occupation mean. As we drank sweet tea during many formal meetings, photos of Yasser Arafat looked down on us from the walls. Those occasions captured the bizarreness of my journey. I'm the son of Holocaust survivors, brought up on the myths of the chosen people and the romantic legend of the promised land. That's the Israel of Leon Uris's exodus, where a new breed of pioneering Jews created an egalitarian society of kibbutzim and made the desert bloom. In the famous words of Golda Meir, it was a land without people for a people without a land. And even here, Jews had to fight repeatedly against the surrounding hordes of murderous Arabs who wished to push them into the sea. As we remember every Passover, in every generation they seek to destroy us. What on earth was I doing among these anti-Semitic terrorists, suicide bombers, Islamic fundamentalists and fanatical jihadists? I was born in the same year that the State of Israel was established, in 1947. I still live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney where I grew up, the son of Holocaust survivors. My mother and grandmother survived Auschwitz, where most of our family perished. We weren't religious and we weren't particularly Zionist either, but for all that, we shared a common feeling about the meaning of the Holocaust and an understanding of the slogan, Never Again. It never occurred to me that this was understood to apply only to Jews. During our trip, we met with a wide range of people, including olive farmers, Bedouin goat herdsmen, senior UN officials, diplomats, including the Australian ambassador to Israel, human rights workers, various Israeli NGO personnel, and even former Israeli Defence Force soldiers. Among these, we met one of the founders of Breaking the Silence, ex-Israeli Defence Force soldiers who are recording testimonies of their role in the occupied territories. I joined a busload of young students and other visitors with Avner from Breaking the Silence, a young man leading the tour to the South Hebron Hills in the Jordan Valley, an area populated by Palestinian Bedouin. He got straight to the point. Are you sure that you're going to find a situation where you know pretty clearly what good and bad is, what right and wrong is? One of the things that we hear over and over in our testimonies if you're sure you're going there to protect Jewish settlers from Palestinian terror, and many times you find yourself doing exactly the opposite, protecting Palestinians from Jewish terror. And it's not only that you find yourself stuck in the middle, but many times you yourself are the aggressor, you yourself are doing violent acts. And we'll talk a little bit about what this actually means. I think the strongest feeling is no one back home has any idea that this is what I'm doing. Suddenly I couldn't explain to myself why and what I've done. Especially in Hebron. Hebron is one of these places that uh, puts you in a corner and forces you to take a stand, to, to try to answer questions. 
Yehuda Scholl is an Orthodox Jew and a patriotic Israeli. He's one of the founders of Breaking the Silence. I first set eyes on him in the streets of Hebron, arguing with the Israeli authorities on his mobile phone. He's a big, burly, bearded young man in jeans with a yarmulke or kippah, the black skullcap, almost invisible on his black short-cut hair. He was pacing back and forth, angry that the army were hindering a tour and he was determined that it would go ahead. For me, the turning point was like towards the end of my service. I was a company sergeant, not too much to do, kind of like the last thing you do before you finish. Just being at this place of thinking about life as a civilian, you know, the first time in my adult life, thinking outside of the box, suddenly it just doesn't make sense. You know, uh, Once you stop thinking it's a professional combat soldier, you, you lose your suffocation for 90% of actions you took part in. And in a way, it's this strong sense of something went wrong that brought me to where I am today. Um, uh, once I felt that, or once I realized that, I felt that I can't continue my life without doing something about it. I had no idea what to do. So I turned down to my comrades around me. And very fast I discovered that we all felt the same. Somewhere in the back of our mind, we all felt that something was wrong. And, and that's how Breaking the Silence was born. And, you know, every time I say it, I feel more and more naive. But the one thing that really shocked us was the realization that people back home in Israel have no clue of what we've done. You know, people who send us to do the job have no idea of what doing the job means. And, and that's when we decided, uh, we called it back then, let's bring Hebron to Tel Aviv. Hi, people. Today's plans. It's Sunday, the 29th. We're off to Hebron today in the south of the West Bank. Lisa Arnold, aid worker from an Australian NGO. We're travelling on the main road north-south of the West Bank, Road 60, heading south through um, Bethlehem to Hebron. We'll be passing one of the main big settlement blocks to the west of Bethlehem called Gush Etzion. This is a block of about a half a dozen different settlements. You can see the intricacy of the wall in and around this settlement block and around Bethlehem area. And you'll see that there are a number of uh, Palestinian villages located within that block who are cut off from Bethlehem. So this wall really surrounds the city of Bethlehem that made Bethlehem city a big prison for its citizens. Bethlehem used to be 31 square kilometers in diameter. Now, due to the building of 22 Israeli settlements, with 87,000 settlers living in these settlements, due to the building of this wall that snakes into the city of Bethlehem between the houses of Bethlehem, Bethlehem is now only 5.7 square kilometers, from 31 to 5.7. All our agricultural land has been confiscated to build these 22 settlements and this wall. This was one of the main sources of income, really, agricultural land. The second source of income is employment in Jerusalem. This has gone down to 10 to 15 percent of the normal because any citizen who wants to go to Jerusalem should get a special permit from the Israeli authorities, and this is very hard to get. Victor Batasse, the Christian mayor of Bethlehem. Walking through his municipality, it's not hard to miss the notorious, massive, eight-metre-high separation wall that's divided local communities right in the heart of the city. This and the single military checkpoint into the city has devastated the tourist trade in this important Christian site. The wall is constantly visible throughout the West Bank. Made of concrete slabs with observation towers jutting out at regular intervals, it's extremely ugly and a constant reminder of the oppressiveness of the occupation. It cuts communities in half and separates Palestinians from their own agricultural land and other resources. Its official rationale is to provide security for Israel against terrorism. But it's obvious that this can't be the reason. For one thing, thousands of Palestinians are on the Israeli side of the wall. That's because 85% of the wall is on Palestinian land and not on the 1948 armistice or Green Line that defines the official border of Israel. Instead, it snakes into Palestinian land around the Israeli settlement blocks, in effect annexing them to Israel, and therefore it was declared illegal by the International Court of Justice in its advisory opinion of 2004. Of course, the immense settlements and over half a million Jewish settlers are all illegal in international law, 
being in violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. When I walked into Hebron, a city where settlers have moved right into the centre, I was struck by the various barriers, checkpoints and metal fences that divide the settler population from the Palestinian population, who are effectively under siege and under constant harassment by Israeli settlers and the army. Just below the Ibrahimi Mosque, the main road, Shuhada Street, has a barrier forcing Palestinians to walk in a narrow section on one side while the rest of the road is open for Israelis, such as the soldiers who were jogging past us. The Palestinian shops on Shuhada Street have been closed by the military, their shutters drawn and they're daubed with Hebrew graffiti, in one case a Star of David. On the narrow cobbled streets, it seemed we were constantly dodging military trucks and armoured cars and passing Palestinians with their heads bowed. On the top of buildings, we noticed Israeli snipers overlooking Palestinian life below. In the marketplace itself, Jewish settlers have taken over homes above the shops and when I looked up, I saw the infamous chicken wire mesh which has been erected to stop rubbish being thrown down onto the Palestinian shoppers by the settlers. At the heart of the conflict in Hebron is the Ibrahimi Mosque. It's the site of significant Jewish and Muslim religious history as the tomb of Abraham and his descendants is there and this is why fundamentalist religious settlers have moved into Hebron. To get into the mosque, we had to queue up and go through three checkpoints. The Palestinians who do this every day seemed resigned to the waiting, bag checks and body searches. Once inside, the tense atmosphere of the street lifted, despite the presence of surveillance cameras everywhere. The huge rooms were filled with Palestinian families socialising after the prayers had ended. Children were playing on the carpeted floors, others were quietly reading the Koran. There was a sense of calm and lightness, and many Palestinians came up to us to talk in warm, enthusiastic conversation. I was aware it was here in 1994 that American-born Israeli Baruch Goldstein had killed 29 Muslim worshippers and wounded another 125. The name is uh, Hamad Khawasma. I work for the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights in Hebron. Well, the massacre took place on the 25th of uh, February 1994. Uh, and according to a number of reports, you have an Israeli settler. His name is Dr. Baruch Goldstein from uh, Brooklyn. He is a, a living in Kiryat Arba uh, that actually came in at the height of Ramadan, uh, on the 15th of Ramadan at the morning prayers, uh, got into the Ibrahimi Mosque and basically machine gunned uh, down 29 uh, Palestinians with a, a number of other injuries. The total for that day of the people of the, that were killed, there was 29 inside the mosque and about uh, 40 outside of the mosque because of all of the uh, disturbances that has taken place and the riots that took place afterwards. There was a commission that was set up by the IDF. Well, part of the recommendation was to put actually a, the entire area uh, under curfew for about six months and then at the same time a policy of separation between the two population were put in place. So any place where Palestinians and Israelis can actually meet has to be closed down. So with that, the bus company closed down, the vegetable markets closed down, and the taxi company was closed down because all of these were located at, at entrances of settlements. As throughout Palestine, in Nablus, Bethlehem, and especially Gaza, we saw many aimless young men on the pathways with no chance of work or high school education. It wasn't until I got to Palestine that I started to really grasp the enormity of the problem for Palestinian people. Walking in the streets of Hebron, Ramallah and Nablus, enjoying the warmth of Palestinian hospitality in their homes and olive groves was a deeply moving experience. Kids with soccer balls, community workers in squalid refugee camps, olive growers, government officials, trade union leaders. The stereotypes were hard to reconcile with the friendliness, the dignity and the decency of the people we met beautiful young women in colourful scarves, young men calling out welcome in English. Invariably, the Palestinians from all walks of life we met pleaded for justice and peaceful coexistence and relief of their considerable hardship under the occupation. My name is Chris Gunnis and I am the spokesman for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, which 
does relief and social services, human development for as many as five million Palestinian refugees across the Middle East um, in those Arab states and territories around Israel, Syria, Jordan, West Bank, Lebanon and Gaza. I think it's an invisible crisis. I think that the refugee issue, simply after 63 years of being refugees, has disappeared from the international agenda, which is a great shame because, in my view, there can be no meaningful peace in the Middle East as there can't be any meaningful resolution of any conflict unless the grievances of the victims are addressed. And in this case, there are 5 million Palestinian refugees who are dispossessed they're stateless, and many of them are living in exile after 63 years. And their grievances have to be addressed if there's going to be peace. I have a son. His name is Jonathan. He's one year old. I want him to have a future. I, I don't want him to live the, the life I live. The, uh, uh, insecurity. A, a feeling that I am not equal. Uh, living in a state that doesn't want me. Having no expectation. I work only because I want to give my son a future. I'm 35 years old. Imagine someone as young as I am is telling you that, that my perspective about the future is so dim. I'm working for my son now. I, I want my son to have peace. It's because based on my experience that unfortunately the conflict really entrenched in every one of us. But I am willing to make a compromise as a Palestinian. I'm willing to make compromise. One of the first things you study, you learn as a combat soldier, as an infantry soldier, is that the worst battlefield for you is the urban areas. The enemy knows the place better than you, booby trap, they control you, there is walls, there is windows, there is roofs, there is... The only problem is that a big part of the occupation is in urban areas. So in 2002, before we reoccupied all Palestinian cities in the West Bank, the Brigadier General of the Paratroopers Brigade came up with a brilliant idea. I have no doubt that 300, 400 years from now in military academies, people will study this tactic. We called in the military the warm procedure. He came up and said, look, Kasba, old cities, Refugee camps. All the houses are built attached to one another. So instead of walking through the streets, let's walk through the walls. The enemy doesn't know where we are. They have no idea what is our next direction. We are always in a surprise. Military-wise, it's a brilliant concept. So we're in the first house. Come to the wall. Put explosives. Boom. We have a hole. Step into the first house. There's a baby in a carriage two, three meters to the left. He's crying. If you would put the explosive two, three meters to the left, you might have killed him or hurt him, but that's the whole purpose, right? We can't see behind the wall, they can't see behind the wall, so we don't know what's behind and they don't know that we're coming. And we grab the father from the first house, he's our human shield for the next of the week, stepping in the first time into the house, so in case someone is there, he will be hurt, not us. And house after house, 16, 18 hours a day on the feet, Four or five days in a row. You come to thin walls, start to break the wall with a heavy hammer. You know, these Palestinians, they know how to work. So he becomes part of the people who break the hole in, in the wall. Now try to close your eyes for a second and think how this place looks like after five days like that. You want to tell me that one of us will have any respect to Palestinian property after a week like this? Military-wise, it's a brilliant concept. You know how many lives of soldiers were saved this way? No doubt that people were saved this way. But what's the price of it? So in front of us is Chavat Ma'on. Chavat Ma'on is also one of these uh, illegal outposts on this line of 317. The small forest with the trees and then tenors right in front of us. This is Chavat Ma'on. Breaking the silence runs regular guided tours to the South Hebron Hills so that participants can see the realities, the consequences of the military occupation that they had themselves enforced when serving in the IDF. As we drove through the Jordan Valley, we could see goats being herded by young boys on donkeys. This is one of the areas in the West Bank where Palestinian Bedouin have lived a semi-nomadic lifestyle for thousands of years. 
They live in traditional tents or underground in caves that their ancestors dug by hand. Like so many other Palestinians, they need permits from Israeli authorities for all infrastructure, including water wells and any solar electricity panels. They showed us a well that had been filled in with rocks and cement by the Israeli army because it was deemed illegal and demolished even though they'd been using it for hundreds of years. They pointed down the valley to land that had previously been theirs but was now off limits. If they tried to use it, they'd be shot from the guard tower at the top of the next ridge. They have to buy their water at three times the price paid by settlers. As most of the Jordan Valley has been declared a closed military zone, Area C, that's 60% of the West Bank under complete Israeli control. I could see that the 15,000 Bedouin that are scattered along these fertile plains are facing huge pressures as they're increasingly being forced off their land. Now you just have to understand that there's basically no real way to pass from village to village. The, every so often they try to pave a road. Just last week, the army came and destroyed the road. Like, it's very, very difficult to build anything uh, sustainable here. And it takes about, I don't know, three hours for the d very distant villages to get all the way to Atawane. If they want to get to any sort of medical help, they want to go to school, it takes them three hours. When they finished building the school here in Atawane, all the kids from the villages wanted to cross through. The shortest way to cross through is between Chavat Ma'on and Ma'on. Right between, there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a valley and to cross through. And constantly, every time these kids used to walk by, the settlers in Chavat Ma'on decided we don't want Palestinians being too close to us. And they started at the beginning throwing rocks and then, you know, and, and, and cursing and yelling. It became more and more and more and more violent. The kids couldn't go to school. They just eventually had to find either ways they'd have to go all the way around or they were just petrified of going to school. Some different organizations, international organizations, stepped in and started walking these kids to school, um, really physically protecting them with their body, until one incident, the settlers from Chavat Ma'on attacked one of the international volunteers. This horrible, horrible attack actually attacked him with uh, uh, metal chains, and they broke almost every bone in his body. And only after that, the army said, OK, we'll intervene. I think that the Israeli leadership is lying to its people. They're not telling them the truth. The people in Israel suffer from uneducation. They are uneducated when it comes to the history of the conflict. They are brainwashed, and that's why they fail to realize that the other people, the Palestinians, have rights. There is incitement in Israeli schools. There is incitement in Israeli textbooks against Arabs, against Palestinians. And it is the education that also needs to be treated in Israel, on both sides, the Palestinians as well. I don't know if you know, but between 1948 and 1967, the Israelis had a military regime that they applied to Arabs in Israel. If you wanted to move from Nazareth to Haifa, you had to have a permit very similar to what's happening now in the West Bank. So my parents suffered, and we suffered. But I don't want my, my child to suffer anymore. I would like, I would like him to, to have a better future. I'd like him to live normally, like children in Europe, or children in Australia, or in Canada, and United States. I wish that to all of the children, not only my child, but also the Jews, my, my friends' children. I don't want to see them going to the army to fight, to fight Arabs or fight anyone else. Why should they die? It's only that the fanatics get their religious dream. What did religion do for us? Sari Bashi is an Israeli and director of Gisha, an Israeli NGO that does legal advocacy around access issues and the social and economic ramifications of Israel's closure of Gaza. I was keen to meet up with Sari and travelled into Tel Aviv to find her office in the back end of town. For Gisha, access in and out of Gaza is the key to improving the lives and economy of Palestinians in Gaza in particular. It's very difficult to get into Gaza and for Gazans 
virtually impossible to get out and into the rest of Palestine. West Bank Palestinians or Israelis can't get into Gaza either, and with no jobs there and no trade into the West Bank and beyond, Gaza's population of 1.6 million is heavily reliant on humanitarian aid, and they're forced to live on handouts day to day. Israel outsourced the financial cost of the occupation in the mid-1990s to the international community. And so you have a situation where Israel is not bearing the financial costs of the occupation. If it were, the occupation would probably end tomorrow because Israel could not bear the financial costs of running the schools and the roads and everything else that would need to be done. What does that mean for the international community? I would never be in a situation to tell an international organization to stop providing health care to sick people in the West Bank. I would say that that kind of influence creates responsibilities. For example, responsibilities to make sure that money donated can be used not just for humanitarian assistance, but also for development. And that requires a political will to insist that access policies be changed so that development can actually work. If you don't allow, for example, folks from Gaza to export their goods, you're not going to have economic development, and then you're going to have to keep providing humanitarian assistance because people are still not going to be able to work. We focused on Gaza because we were concerned that when Israel would implement its disengagement policy in 2005, withdrawing settlers and a permanent military ground presence from Gaza, if it closed the borders real tight after that, we would have a problem, which is exactly what happened. Gaza City in winter is severe. Years of the closure and blockade have left the city and its people almost destitute. The common sight of donkeys pulling carts made me realise just how desperate the situation is with fuel shortages, regular power blackouts and no sign of hope on the streets. To get into Gaza from the West Bank, we had to go through the infamous Erez checkpoint, an intimidating experience. This large military facility looks like a futuristic science fiction military space station, full of armed Israeli guards behind glass walls. I had to walk through a maze of grey passages with red and green lights telling me when to move and when to stop. The guards were overhead behind glass, barking instructions through loudspeakers, and I was given a full body scan three times, ordered to stand legs apart, arms in the air. Finally, after several hours, we were able to walk the two-kilometre stretch of no-man's land into Gaza. The path was monitored by ever-present cameras, and nearby machine guns were mounted on walls and remotely operated. The only people getting into and out of Gaza regularly are NGO and UN workers like Scott Anderson from the United Nations Relief Works Agency, or UNRWA. Of the 1.1 million refugees, we're providing food aid of some sort to nearly 800,000 of them. Between um, the emergency program, of which there's about 700,000, and then within relief, there's a, what's called a social safety net program, and within that program, there's 100,000. Um, all the benefits are done based on poverty targeting, Either you're abject poor, which gets you one package, absolute poor, which gets you another package. So, for example, in emergency, if you're abject poor, we provide you nearly 80% of your daily caloric intake. And if you're absolute poor, you're provided 40% of your daily intake. Our welcome to Gaza City was at the UN compound where we were shown the spot that Israeli forces had bombed. Gaza City seemed to be frozen in time since the January 2009 Israeli attack known as Operation Cast Lead. The unarmed civilian population was attacked and bombed for three weeks with nowhere to flee from conventional weapons and illegal phosphorus bombs. 1,400 people were killed and three years later the destroyed building sites, burnt facades and crumbling pavements and roads are constant reminders of what happened. And there's obviously no money and no materials to make any substantial repairs. We heard horrific, heartbreaking stories about Operation Cast Lead. We start with him. Ayman is a paramedic. He's an ambulance crew. He's been working during the war to rescue some of the people who were sustaining serious injuries. And he was eyewitness of Israeli crimes that were committed in different zones of the Gaza Strip. In one of the cases, he was trying to rescue one of the people who were seriously injured. He rushed to the scene. The area was all enveloped with 
white phosphor clouds and he couldn't see anything and women were screaming out of fear and shock when they are seeing two men in the car who were cut into pieces but they were still alive. The man who was supposed to be his aide was like petrified, he couldn't move, he was totally paralyzed and unable to move because of what he was seeing. Like for example in a Samuni family, even the her movie directors would be inspired by what they have been seeing. Like imagine a whole family dead, but one child who's very young and who's crawling to his mother and sleeping in her chest while she's dead and screaming, hoping that he would wake her up, wanting to get food, wanting to feed his dead mother. I came in on the 5th of January, and primarily I was here to help logistics, just to get stuff in so we could take care of people here in Gaza. I mean, it was very difficult because the, you know, the assault was basically nonstop. Uh, we had challenges getting supplies to people, I mean, and a lot has been written about some of the atrocities that took place around Castled. I mean, uh, the Samuni family is a prominent family here in Gaza. And if you look them up, you can read all this on Wikipedia. I'll give you the, the short version. But they were evacuated from their home, moved to another building, moved to another building, and that building was then shelled by the IDF. Like uh, 29 of them were killed. And they're very... Uh, peaceful family, non-political. You know, there were reports of um, you know people getting shot at under a white flag. One of the understaff was killed, kind of on the front line, which is sort of by Betanoon. And we went out to retrieve the body because it was on the front line, and and nobody else could get close enough. And we got shot at by the Israelis. You know, big UN land cruiser. It's not hard to see us. You can see us coming from a long ways away. We went out the first time on the 7th of January, the 14th of January, we successfully retrieved the body, and then the 15th of January is when our compound was was bombed and the warehouse burned down. You know, when you bring artillery, 155 millimeter cannons, into urban areas, you cannot say you've done everything to avoid civilian casualties. When you bring mortar fire into an urban area, anyone who understands a bit of military will tell you that, nah. This is not doing everything to avoid sending casualties. To understand how horrifying was the story of Castlet is you need to know the details, the numbers of the military. Okay? Uh, a shell, a regular exploding shell. Put aside white phosphorus. Everybody was talking about this. A regular exploding shell of artillery is 52 kilograms. Explodes, kills people in a radius of 50 meters. Injures another 200 meters. In a full-scale war, we use these weapons... 250 meters from our troops if we're behind cover, meaning in bunkers or tanks, 350 meters if we're exposed. In Operation Castle, the distance from buildings for these weapons was less than 50 meters. War methods were used as opposed to regular operation. With cover fire, with bombardment, with, with, with. And that's where the story lies. There was only no resistance. All the paratroopers brigade with special forces, two battalions of tanks, one battalion of engineers, Navy Air Force assisting them. This is over 2,700 combat soldiers. They didn't come under close contact fire more than seven times. In my time as a soldier, I came more than that. Just outside Ramallah is the large military prison and court system, Ofa. I travelled there with a lawyer from the Palestinian office of the NGO Defence of Children International, or DCI. I wanted to witness the court in operation, and in particular, the trial of minors. Before leaving on this trip, I'd read two articles by John Lyons in The Weekend Australian about children being tried and imprisoned in military courts. I'd read that approximately 40% of the total male Palestinian population in the occupied territories had been detained and imprisoned since 1967 and that there were currently about 4,500 Palestinians in prisons in the West Bank or in Israel. 
Apparently, 200 of these are under 18 years old, while another 300 are in administrative detention, which is detention without charge or trial. I caught up with Gerard Horton, an Australian lawyer working on the ground in Ramallah, in his office some 15 minutes away from the OFA prison system. His calm demeanour and clear, unflinching attention to detail masked an intensity that was just below the surface. My job as a lawyer is to ensure that we collect high-quality evidence, we collect testimonies from well over 100 children each year, and with those testimonies we prepare reports and uh, do our international advocacy. The most common military orders and offences that we are familiar with in the military courts are relating to throwing stones um, in about... 62% of our cases that children are accused of throwing stones. It's an offence to throw a stone at military vehicle, at cars, at people, and at uh, fixed objects like the wall. And we've had cases where children have been in prison for three months for throwing stones at the wall, which is considered to be an army facility. And it's seen, I think, as a form of resistance. And so um, that form of resistance needs to be punished. I work in the military courts for uh, seven years. And I feel it's uh, not an easy job what I do because I work with, with the children and uh, in the military courts, I feel myself is not found justice in the court, but I try to help the children. Iyad Misk, lawyer with DCI. I accompanied him to Ofa and joined families and relatives of prisoners in the arduous, humiliating process of getting into the military courts in Ofa. It took hours as we had to go through the checkpoint at the wall, then through another two grim checks at the prison entrance. Nothing could be taken in except pencil and paper. But finally I found myself in a compound ringed with cameras and barbed wire where eight run-down demountables were the courts that operate daily. Inside, the prisoners were brought in shackled and handcuffed and they immediately looked for their relatives in the back rows where they're forced to sit. Hurried conversations ensued until a young soldier shouted for silence as the female prosecutor with designer sunglasses on her head began to cross-examine the youthful detainee. Everybody, everybody in the court is soldiers. The judge is uh, his uniform soldier and the the prosecutor and the translation and everybody is uh, army. This is the problem. In the military order, the prosecutor and the judge can keep any prisoner without uh, to see judge to eight days and after eight days he come to see the judge and before the eight days we try too many times to to ask the jail to let us to meet him in the prisoner the jail told us not today maybe tomorrow and we see him only in the court the first time i see the child only in the court what often happens is Incidents of stone throwing occurs at the friction points in the West Bank. And those friction points are where a village, Palestinian village, is next door to an Israeli settlement or where a road passes close to a, a Palestinian village which is used by the Israeli army or settlers. People do throw stones both at the military vehicles, armoured military vehicles, and from time to time at um, settler cars as well and settler buses. So what tends to happen is an assumption will be made that the person or people who threw stones came from the nearest Palestinian village. The records will be checked as to people who've been arrested in that village before, people who are seen to be troublemakers. There's also uh, a network of informers. So uh, the informers, if there are any in that village, will be checked to see has anyone been boasting about throwing stones who are the with the troublemakers in that village, so to speak. And from that, a list will be compiled. Once the child's been identified, his hands will usually be tied behind his back with a single plastic tie. And many children complain that these ties are very tight, sometimes cutting off the blood circulation to the hands and cutting into the wrists. The child will also be blindfolded, will be led out of the house and be placed in the back of a military vehicle and driven off to an interrogation centre At the moment, most children are being interrogated in police stations in settlements, Ariel Settlement and Gushetzion Settlement, mostly. Unlike their Israeli counterparts, children will be taken into the interrogation room without a parent. Generally, the parents will only see their child again when the child appears in a military court, which is usually has to be within eight days of arrest.
we've all been there. We've all done that. Now, it's not that I mean we all murdered innocent people. No, far away from that. But what I'm saying is that no one who served there has clean hands today. And that's the story. Because you cannot be there and not be there in the same time. You cannot be an occupier and not behave as such in the same time. And, and that's, I think, the, the essence of what we're trying to bring people to understand. Like, an occupation is like a math equation. One plus one ends two. Military control and civilians starts with what we're telling about and ends where you don't want to know. Because from the start of your role, there is no real way of serving in the occupied territories and seeing Palestinians as equal human beings to you. Um, it, it's just impossible. I don't know, here in Jerusalem, I've never broken into houses in the middle of the night and tore apart a place. Probably in Australia, wherever city you live, the police doesn't break into your house in the middle of the night, right? But as we're now sitting down and discussing and having this interview here in Jerusalem, in Hebron, where I saw you earlier, there's two patrols, one code named 30, 139, on the radio. Number 30 is in charge of the old city. 39 is in charge of neighborhoods around. And their job is to do what we call in the military, make our presence felt. What is that? The military concept is that if Palestinians will get the feeling that the IDF is everywhere all the time, they'll be afraid to attack. So what do you do to give them this feeling? You make your presence felt. Start your night shift patrol from 10 o'clock till 6 o'clock in the morning, eight hour shift. Walk in the old city of Hebron. Bump into a house. I'm a sergeant, I choose a random house. Wake up the family, men one side, women the other side. Search the place. You can yourself imagine the dynamics. Go out, knock on some doors, make some noise, run to the other corner of the street, invade another house. Wake up the family, search the place. And that's basically how you spend your eight-hour shift. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, from September 2000, when the second intifada started to today. It didn't stop for one second. The idea is to do what we call in the military, near the foot. to create the feeling of being chased, of being hunted. Yeah, Every Palestinian needs to feel that we're right here, Yeah, right behind our neck, briefing. You never know when we're going to show up. You never know what we're going to do, when it's going to start, when it's going to end, how many are we... Yeah, everything can happen everywhere, all the time. So a straw widow is basically a method that the army uses to take over a house as an observation point or using it as a sniper's point or sometimes even just taking over the house to show you that you're present in the city. could even be sometimes not even professional, like going to a house taking over the house and putting an Israeli flag in the middle. But all these different methods is taking over a Palestinian's house. In many cases, the people living in the house still. So you go into the house, take all the family, put them in one room. Of course, they can't go to work, can't go to school. Now, this could be several hours. It could be sometimes days, sometimes weeks. Usually after weeks, the family are kicked out of the house. Um, so there are places that are now constant straw widows, and the families were totally kicked out of the house with no compensation. But usually what happens is you go into a house for 6 to 12 hours, and the house is yours. This happens all the time. I mean, I, I, I myself was commander of, I'd say, even hundreds of them. This is a method that's not even questioned inside the Israeli society. This isn't an extreme case. This is something that's from very high up happens, everyone knows it happens. Part of the idea of prevention, going in before something will happen, to show your presence, to show that you're there, that you show your control, this is one of the methods. That land now it lies fallow. Um, the farmers cannot access that land, so farmers can get permits to access their land through a, an agricultural gate in the wall. Do you know where that agricultural gate is? Way around the other side of uh, the settlement. Not necessarily here, it might be like five or six kilometres away. And that uh, permit given to that farmer can also stipulate exactly what tools you're allowed to take onto his land. Generally not allowed to take uh, tractors. He may or may not be allowed to take a donkey. Those agricultural gates are only open at certain hours and even then only at harvest time. All those olive groves can't, cannot be tended through the year at all. Now, it's also a way for the Israeli authorities to you know, further confiscate Palestinian land. They use a range of laws, Israeli laws, they're using Ottoman laws, they're using Jordanian laws. 
and they're using military orders. For example, I think it's old Ottoman law says that if land lies fallow for three years, then uh, the Israeli authorities can come in and declare it as state land and um, confiscate it from the Palestinian owners. And of course, it's going to lie fallow for three years because the farmer can't access it. So. I'm Shawan Jibreen. I'm a director of Al-Haq. Al-Haq is the Palestinian non-governmental human rights organization. It's the first human rights organization in the Middle East. It was founded in 1979, and I joined this organization since uh, 87, before the first intifada started. And uh, I started as a field worker. Today I'm a director of Al-Haq. The practices and the elements of the occupation here, it's combined between occupation, apartheid, and colonialism practices and system. When you see, for instance, roads for Jews only, pipe waters for Jews only, and they enjoy water, swimming pools, everything, and Palestinians next to them, they have no water to drink. That's an issue. When you see that they have, we have two legal systems here, one legal system on the Jews and the other system on Palestinian side, and when you see that they are taking resources and Palestinian natural resources for their own interest only and for their own benefits. And the Palestinians here, they live in their land. They are poor and they don't find anything even uh, for their income for their families. This is a colonialism system also. When, they in you, when you integrate the economy of the occupied territory in your economy, it's completely... Uh, colonialism. It's a colonial system. That's the case. Because of that, it's not enough to say Israel is an occupying power or in Palestine there is an occupation. No, no. We have to define more than that. We have to go in depth of that to say this occupation, it, it's, it has a nature of colonialism and apartheid. been working only from 2004, but what we managed to do is clarify the discussion. What is the moral price we're willing to pay? What are we putting forth, land or people's lives? As Yehuda Scholl said to us, his mother didn't know what he was doing in Hebron and elsewhere. Breaking the silence has held a mirror to Israelis and to the larger Jewish community abroad, indeed to us all, demanding that we take responsibility for what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza. As he put it, if you want a military occupation, okay, we'll tell you the moral cost. When your mission is go and control Hebron and make sure that 800 settlers have rights, 175,000 Palestinians don't have rights, so I don't know of a nice way of doing it. And this is where breaking the science does not take the mainstream human rights approach and things, yeah? What we say is if you actually want to put in jail every soldier, abuse a Palestinian, all my generation needs to stand in one straight line, march left, right, left, right, into jail. I'm not saying this to reduce responsibility from us. Exactly the opposite. I'm saying this to increase responsibility of all of us. And that is, I think, the most important thing to understand. That was Breaking the Silence, produced by Kathy Peters and presented by Peter Slezak for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in 2012. As I mentioned at the top of the hour, we've invited Rabbi Brent Rosen to join us today. I think it's fair to say that Rabbi Rosen is a very outspoken critic of the Israeli government and a prominent advocate for Palestinian rights. He's also my rabbi, though he recently resigned from the Jewish Reconstructionist Congregation in Evanston, Illinois, where he worked for 17 years. How did you first hear about breaking the silence, and what has your experience been with them? I visited Israel, uh, and it was the trip was really uh, a very sobering tour through the West Bank to see the reality on the ground, and probably the most disturbing thing, no, not probably, definitely, I call it the belly of the beast, <laughs> is Hebron, which is a, um, a city in the West Bank that I have absolutely no trouble saying is apartheid. 
literally, there are parts of the city that are completely off limits to Palestinians. Uh, there are sidewalks, there are streets that Palestinians are not allowed to walk on. You see Jews walking down them, and then you see Palestinians shoved to the side um, on narrow little walkways. There are parts of Hebron where Palestinians can literally not leave their front door. Uh, they have to leave their home through the back door or their back windows in some cases uh, because the streets in front of their houses are off limits. You describe the city as apartheid. Did you see that anywhere else or in any other circumstances? I have a really interesting story about Hebron, actually. This was a, a subsequent trip when I took congregants back. We were led by one of our tour guides was a Palestinian, an amazing young man named Aziz Abusara. He actually had family uh, in that part of Hebron that's off limits to Palestinians. And he wanted to show us this neighborhood where he grew up and played with his cousins, and uh, but he couldn't go in. And so he asked me for my kippah, my yarmulke. Uh, and uh, He's a really funny guy, actually. He's got a great sense of humor. And he was unfazed by this. I think our group was just mortified seeing what he had to do. But he thought it was funny, and he put my kippah on his head, and we went to the, the uh, Israeli soldier who was guarding the, the, the checkpoint there to, on that, to that part of the city. And he said, oh, I have this group of uh, uh, Americans from a synagogue in Chicago, and they want to see you know this, this area, and they let us through. And... He showed us his you know, family's home that he was not allowed to go into, and the only reason he could was pretending to be a Jew, which he thought was hilarious <laughs> in a sort of dark way. And we were just, uh, it was, again, I think many people in that trip would say that moment, seeing him wearing my yarmulke in order to pass into his own home was a pivotal moment for them. As a Jewish leader speaking out for Palestinian rights, what has the reaction been to your views? It's interesting. Within the congregation, it raised a lot of dust, but the leadership of the congregation uh, really stood by me very bravely, and I think unlike most congregations. And it wasn't that they agreed with me or that they, you know, down the line um, fell in with what I was saying and doing, but they understood that one of the jobs of being a rabbi is is speaking your conscience and being a voice of conscience and modeling that. And we worked very hard to put together a system where we could create civil discourse within the congregation so that people didn't feel that my views were somehow monopolizing the congregation, that people could express their feelings about Israel and about what was going on in Gaza at the time and, and the occupation in general safely in, in a congregational setting. And we also attempted to put together a committee that would ensure a variety and, and diversity of, of programs on the issue of Israel-Palestine. And um, it was hard, but we found we managed to make it work. That's been about six years now. And uh, this last spring was really when I realized that uh, it was time for me to, to move on, that it, ca- it, it was causing tensions in the congregation that really were um, becoming intolerable for me as a rabbi to be able to really do my job completely. But this one issue in the American Jewish community is really the, I like to call it the third rail of uh, American Jewish politics. And I stepped very publicly and very directly on it, um, knowing that it would have consequences. And I'm realizing now it's, it's really time to move on. So in the interest of full disclosure, I mentioned at the top of the hour that I am a member of the synagogue where you are a rabbi. And I should also say that my parents are members there, and that my father is a Holocaust survivor. You know, the Holocaust is cited as the reason and justification for Israel's existence and for the American Jewish support of Israel at any cost. How do you respond to that? I understand psychologically and historically that after the Holocaust, the trauma of the Holocaust, how creating a Jewish state that could be a home to Jews, no matter where they lived, and could protect the security of Jews everywhere. I can understand how that would be a very compelling idea uh, and feel like a really good idea. Um, and I, I fear and do believe that it's been a, something of a Faustian bargain, that by putting our faith in nationalism and militarism to keep us safe uh, has, uh, in many ways, um, had the exact opposite effect because Israel is 
you know, a, a state of Jews that is feels enormously vulnerable, that consistently characterizes itself as a small state that's living in a, you know, surrounded by by enemies that seek its destruction. And um, it, it hasn't done away with anti-Semitism. It hasn't done away with Jewish insecurity. It's just magnified it on a national level. So I don't, I don't believe nationalism and militarism is any kind of panacea for anyone. I don't think it's a panacea for our own country. When I see what the United States is doing in Syria right now, if we really think bombing the hell out of uh, that country is going to somehow uh, make, make us safer from ISIS, um, I think it's exactly the same thing. I think it just, it just exacerbates the problem. And I think engagement and diplomacy is, has ever been the answer. Brent Rosen, currently the rabbi at the Jewish Reconstructionist Congregation in Evanston, Illinois. He recently announced his resignation. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Annie Kostakis. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound is also provided by the Logan Theater in Chicago's Logan Square. This October, the Logan Theater presents their third annual horror movie, Madness. From Nightmare on Elm Street to Beetlejuice, the Logan celebrates the season with late-night showings and family matinees every weekend. There's more information at thelogantheater.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes, send us an email, or let us know through Facebook or Twitter. You can also support us with a donation at thirdcoastfestival.org. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.